0: Now, friends, we are beginning today in 1 Peter, and we've come now back to the New Testament, and we've come to a rather remarkable book. In fact, we have two epistles written by the Apostle Peter, and he's a remarkable man also. And we would like to say several things by way of introduction concerning this man. He has been called by some the ignorant fisherman. But no man who has spent three years in the school of Jesus could be called ignorant, and the epistles of Peter confirm that. In fact, the matter is, Peter deals with doctrine and handles weighty subjects, and this is seen in his treatment of the great words of the gospel many of which are gathered together at the very beginning. And we'll spend some time here in these first few verses because actually in the first three verses that we have here, he deals with certain great doctrines like election, foreknowledge, sanctification, obedience, the blood of Christ, the Trinity, the grace of God, and then salvation, and revelation, and glory, and faith, and hope. My friends, you just couldn't have any more doctrine crowded in a few verses than this man has crowded it in. And he is the man they call the ignorant fisherman. We cannot agree with that. Now, it is true that he was bumbling and stumbling at the very beginning, as an apostle. But our Lord, when he saw him, he said, you are a pretty weak man now, but I'm going to make you Petros. I'm going to make you a little rock. You're going to be a rock man. And you'll be built on the foundation of which Christ is the rock. And Peter makes it very clear that the Lord Jesus is the rock on which the church is built, by the way, and not on him. In fact, uh, the matter is... He does a very interesting thing. His name means rock. And he says, of all other believers, he says that they're little rocks also. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, But ye also as living stones. He says that every believer is uh, Simon Peter. Simon Peter never takes an exalted position as we're going to see here. He calls himself an apostle as he opens the epistle. But he's just one of them. Now, it's true, in every list, he's named first. And the Lord chose him to preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost. But he never in any way gave him anything other than that. And Simon Peter never felt that he was exalted. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, "...the elders who are among you I exhort." him also an elder. Simon Peter says, I'm just one of you. He never took an exalted position of himself at all. Now, the fact that he wrote his epistles probably after Paul had written his epistles. And this first epistle is written somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. And it was after bloody Nero had come to the throne, and already persecution was breaking out, and he wrote both of his epistles in that particular period. Now, the place that he wrote from is interesting, and it's controversial, and there's always been difference of opinion. The big problem, I would say, of this epistle, although the liberal has tried to discount both the epistles of Peter, especially the second epistle. But any conservative scholar can give you adequate proof that Simon Peter's epistles belong in the canon of Scripture. Now, the place he wrote from, we're told, is Babylon. He says, verse 13 of chapter 5, "...the church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, greeteth you." Well, now, he has to be in Babylon for the church. Now, there are those that think that he's using it in a symbolic manner or a metaphorical sense as meaning Rome. Well, there's no reason for him to do that because Simon Peter is an apostle who didn't deal in language like that. Now, John in the book of Revelation will do that, no question about it. He's using symbolic language, but Peter's not doing that. Peter gets right down where the rubber meets the road. He gets right down on the sidewalk where you and I walk today, right on the asphalt of life. And he's not dealing with symbols. Simon Peter had meant Rome. He would have said Rome. Now, personally, my judgment is Simon Peter never did go to Rome. I don't think he ever saw Rome. Now, I think he was in Asia Minor, and that was the great heart of the Roman Empire But he was not the apostle that opened up that territory. It was Paul. And Paul would never have gone to Rome if Peter had been there ahead of him, because Paul made it very clear that he went where the gospel had not been preached before. And Rome was on his itinerary. So I take it that Peter did not found the church in Rome at all. But Paul actually did that. Now, there's another very valid argument that Peter was not in Rome, but in actual Babylon. Because if you'll notice the places that he mentions, the ones he's writing to are sojourners scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you get your map, you'll find out those places are in what we call Turkey today, or Asia Minor. And he moves from east to west. Now, if he'd been in Rome, it'd been a little awkward to go way over and begin at the west and move toward himself. The common way to do is to always begin where you are and then move from there. Now, if I said that I was coming east and I'm in California as I make this, I say, well, I'll be going through Arizona and I'll be going through Texas and I'll be going up to Buffalo, New York. I think I'd take it in that. And I wouldn't say that I'm going to Buffalo, New York, Phoenix, Arizona, and Dallas, Texas. I just wouldn't give it in that jumbled way. And I'm sure that you wouldn't either. So we have every reason to believe that this man, Simon Peter, is in actual Babylon. Now, you must remember that if you go back far enough at the time that the Babylonian captivity ended that a very small group of Jews returned back to that land, less than 60,000. That means, therefore, that Simon Peter, and his ministry, was with these people, and there was a great colony in Babylon at this time. You see, it still it was a great city on the Euphrates River. And many of them had stayed there. And then persecution that had broken out in the Roman Empire under Claudius not only caused Aquila and Priscilla to go to Corinth, but it caused many in that land to go on over to Babylon. And persecution of Christians had begun also, as well as of Jews. So that there was quite a colony in Babylon. I see no reason to discount the fact that Simon Peter was the apostle that went to those that were scattered abroad of the nation Israel. And there was some in Babylon. And he went in that direction, while Paul is the one that went west. Now, i spent a little time with this because, very frankly, I consider it rather important. Now, he deals with all these great doctrines, yet he doesn't deal with them in a cold, matter-of-fact way. He's been called... a Apostle of hope. Paul has been called the apostle of faith, and John is called the apostle of love. There's a great emphasis here upon hope in this epistle. But I believe that the word that conveys the theme of the epistle is suffering. Now, there are some that find grace, and they think that he emphasizes the grace of God, which he does. But suffering with the cognate words that go with it occurs 16 times, and the word hope is always tied to it. The Christian hope in the time of trial would be a very, I think, adequate title for this first epistle. And I have divided the epistle like this. Suffering and security of believers in the first nine verses of the first chapter. Then verses 10 through 25, suffering in the Scriptures. And then chapters 2 through 4, suffering and the suffering of Christ. And then chapter 5, suffering in the second coming of Christ. So we are back at this theme that we've had before, and that is the suffering of Christ. We've seen it in the epistle of James. We have seen it in the epistle to the Hebrews. And the prophets certainly mentioned it. And here we have it as the theme of this epistle. And it'll be handled in a little different way. Now, this man speaks out of a rich experience. In fact, Dr. Layton, in his book on First Peter, makes a very timely remark that applies to Simon Peter. Let me read this to you, because this is something worth having. He writes, I'm quoting, It is a cold and lifeless thing to speak of spiritual things on mere report. But when men can speak of them as their own, as having share and interest in them and some experience of their sweetness, their discourse of them is enlivened with firm belief and ardent affection. They cannot mention them But straight their hearts are taken with such gladness as they are forced to vent in praises. You're going to find that in the midst of suffering here, Simon Peter emphasizes joy. Now, friends, that brings me to something that is very important. Now, we have about today some very wonderful young preachers who are expositors. And I'm for them 102%. But I've listened to two or three of them, and I feel very much like Dr. G. Campbell Morgan did. He and his wife went to hear a young preacher they were interested in. And his wife, Dr. Morgan's wife, was just carried away with the young man. Women generally are with this young preacher, eloquent, fine-looking. And he gave a great sermon. And when they left, why, she was, oh, she was waxing eloquent. She says, he's a great preacher. And she noticed that Dr. Morgan didn't respond. And finally, she says, don't you think that he's a great preacher? And Dr. Morgan made this statement. He says, he will be after he suffers. And she thought that is a strange thing. Well, that young man found out by experience what it is to stand for Christ. He stood at an open grave as he buried one of his little children. And he went through other things, persecution, problems in his church. And then Dr. Morgan and his wife, because they loved this young man, they went to hear him again. And when they left, his wife wasn't so eloquent because she was afraid that he would, you know, pour cold water on it again. And as they left, though, and she hadn't said anything, till finally they got out. And in the silence, she broke it by saying, well, what do you think of him now? And Dr. Morgan said, he's a great preacher. You see, that's the difference. Now, Simon Peter is going to speak out of experience. You see, a great deal of preaching today is theory. A young man that hasn't experience suffering, I remember that I've been pastor here in this area and Pasadena, I began in 1940. I was a young man. You wouldn't believe it. I was in my 30s. And I preached a great deal about standing for the Lord and suffering. And I used to go to the hospital, pat people on the hand, and pray with them and tell them, Lord, be with them. And that, my friend, was a professional preacher and saying what I did not know to be true from experience. I believed it, but the day came when I went in the hospital, and another preacher came in and prayed for me and started out. I said to him, I said, I've done the same thing you've done. I said, I've been here, and I've told people that God be with them. Now, I said, you're going to walk out of here. I'm staying. And I'm going to find out whether the theory that I've been telling people is true or not. And friends, you want to know something? I found out it was true. But now, it's not a theory. I know it. I know it by the fact that the Word of God said it, and I experienced it. And I just don't argue with people about these things anymore, because there's certain things I know. I would never argue with you about whether honey was sweet or not. It's sweet, and I just don't argue about it. If you don't think it's sweet, that's your business. But my business is, I know it's sweet, because I had some this morning for breakfast. It was sweet. Now, may I say to you, Simon Peter is going to speak to us out of a tremendous experience, by the way. And the thing that's going to make it very wonderful to us is that I trust it'll become your experience and my experience. Now we come to the first division here, suffering and the security of believers. And very frankly, a great many people I don't think can ever have the feeling of assurance. You see, security is a doctrine. I believed in it. But it took me a long time to come to a place of assurance, of my salvation. And there are a great many people today who believe in the security of the believer, but they don't have the assurance of their salvation. Why? Because Suffering and the security of the believers go together, and you know what? It'll produce joy. Can you imagine that? It'll produce joy in the life of a believer. Now, I want to read this very first verse here, and it's just loaded with meaning. Will you listen to it? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the sojourners scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, first of all, his name. He's now the rock man. We're now past Pentecost. This man knows now what it is to take a stand for Christ. He knows what it is to be arrested and put in jail. He knows what it is to be threatened. And now he knows that ahead of him is a cross that he's to be crucified on. This man knows what he's talking about. And I don't know about you, I must confess that I'm not impressed by professors in theological seminaries today who, to begin with, have had really no experience as pastors. They don't really know the problems of the pastor because they've never experienced them. They don't know what it is. And they don't know what it is, really, to suffer. So when they get up and... Spin off some theory today. I always feel like, well, I want to turn back to the first epistle of Peter. And I want to read it again because I believe him and I don't believe the young professors. I'm sorry I'm that way, friends, but that's just the way that it is. Because I want to know something. I want a word from somebody that knows what they're talking about and has experienced it, and it's life and light to them, and therefore that it's brought to them a great blessing. I'm interested in that. Now, Peter, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that's all he claims to be. He's just one of them. He heads the list, and I'll always put him number one. I love him, but I'm sure not going to put him above the other apostles, Paul didn't. Paul says, I went to Jerusalem, and I talked to Peter, James, and John, and they seemed to be something. They were the pillars of the church there. But he says, after all, I didn't go by them. I had been given the gospel by Jesus Christ directly. And by the way, he's another man that talked out of experience. He knew what he was talking about. Now, he's speaking to the sojourners scattered throughout Actually, the Roman Empire. Now, these people are Jews. They were called the Diaspora. That is, they were no longer in the land of Palestine. For different reasons, they found themselves scattered in different places. And you will find out that Paul, you will recall on his second missionary journey, wanted to go to Bithynia. And the Spirit of God wouldn't let him go there. He didn't know, but I think probably Simon Peter had already been there. And the Spirit of God's only sending him where the gospel hadn't been preached before. And these are places that if you'll get a good map of that day, you'll find that they're all in what we call Asia Minor, modern Turkey today. And they are different areas in that section. And he's writing to those people that he was the apostle to, Paul the apostle to the Gentiles, and Simon Peter the apostle to these that are of Israel, that are believers, for many had turned to Christ in that day. Now, friends, we've come to a very difficult section. I'm very frank to admit it, and Simon Peter, the so-called ignorant fisherman, is the one that brings in more doctrine here, and I mean difficult doctrine. Let me read verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, that's verse 2 of chapter 1 of First Peter. He immediately plunges us in deep water here of doctrine. I don't consider him an ignorant fisherman, by the way, because he's talking about things that I must confess that I do not know too much about today. I want to read you what the new Schofield Reference Bible has to say about this. And will you listen to it? It says... The sovereign choice of God in foreordination, election, and predestination logically originated in the divine decision based on his eternal omniscience of all possible plans of action. The order logically, not chronologically, is omniscience, divine decision, foreordination, election, predestination, And foreknowledge, as God's decision is eternal, however, so also is foreknowledge is eternal. As foreknowledge extends to all events, it includes all that is embraced in election, foreordination, and predestination. Election is therefore according to foreknowledge, and foreknowledge is according to election, meaning that both are in perfect agreement. Do you know what that means? May I make a confession to you, and let not let this get out to the public by any means. I don't know what that means, and it reveals the fact that we are dealing actually with God's side of the problem. Now, I'd like to read to you a much simpler statement of election, and I want to give to you what Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer has in his book on doctrine. Now, listen to this, and it... I think is much more helpful and it says it better than I can say it. It says, having recognized the sovereign right of God over his creation and having assigned to him a rational purpose in all his plan, the truth contained in the doctrine of election follows in natural sequence as the necessary function of one who is divine. Now, that is a little more helpful to me. We must recognize that our God is a sovereign God. And this is his universe. He created it. I don't know why he created it. And I don't know why he created it as he did. Why didn't he make this little world that we live on? Why didn't he give us more land space so we'd have more parking today? I don't know why that he made it just as he did, but that's the way he did it. And he followed certain natural laws. We call them natural laws. They were his, and he could have made them conform to other laws if he'd have wanted to. Since God is absolutely omniscient, he knows everything. Since he's omnipotent, he has all power. And since he's the sovereign God today, I figure that he can just do anything that he wants to do that's consistent with his character. Now, he has a right to plan for the future, and apparently he did some planning. We call them decrees that God at the very beginning had in mind. That is a plan that he was going to follow. He had a decree that he'd create this universe, and he did it. He never asked me about it. In fact, he never asked me whether I wanted to even be in existence. He could have left me out altogether, and he could have left you out altogether. But he didn't. Thank God he didn't. I'm glad that he thought of me and thought of you. And then there was the decree to permit the fall. Now, I think it took a great deal of planning on his part to decide whether, when he created this free moral agent called man, And he would fall when he gave him free choice, because that's humanity for you, even when man was created perfect. Mankind chose to disobey God. Well, God made arrangements for it. There was a decree to elect some to salvation. God didn't want to make it a total wreck. And the cross of Christ, friends, is not an ambulance sent to a wreck. God had the thing all planned, worked out, and then he decreed that he would provide a Savior. He'd send a Savior into the world. And he certainly did that. And he made a decree that he'd save those that came to him, the elect. And you can call them anything you want to. But the very fact that he chose some, and somebody says, well, he didn't choose the others. Well, I can't find that anywhere. I find that it's like the Lord Jesus put it. He says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. you got to come to him. And his invitation was, come unto me. And that's a legitimate invitation. And he says, whosoever will. Therefore, there has to be the response. And the response is your responsibility, and it's my responsibility, and I believe that when he speaks here, boy, does he get us into a great deal of deep water here when he says, "...elect according to the foreknowledge of God." You see, God not only knows the plan he's following today, but God knows every plan. And he knows this plan he's following. There must have been before him an infinite number of plans. He's following this one. Why? Why? Because he chose to do it. He's running it. We forget that we're a creature, you see. We forget that we had very little choice. I didn't even determine the time I was to be born. I didn't determine the family I'd be born in. I didn't determine my height. I didn't determine the color of my eyes. There are a lot of things that I didn't have anything to do with at all. And that's the reason that whatever you are today... You're that by the grace of God, and you can thank God for it, and you ought never to be filled with pride because of that. Now, God had a plan, and he's working on that plan. I don't know why we find fault with God for doing that. We feel like he's going to be up to some dirty tricks if he's the one running it, but he's not, my friend. God is good and gracious, and he's long-suffering, and he wants to save, and so God is one we can trust, and we don't mind man-making plans. I don't know why. My wife and I, we got on the plane in London coming home, and we're going to fly all the way to Los Angeles. And when we got aloft, the captain came on, and I sure like to hear a voice that comes on that's mature and speaks with assurance. And this captain came on. I noticed that he is a mature man. He'd flown that plane before, I was sure of that. And he knew what he was talking about. He said several things that to me were very interesting. He says that we're going to fly over Scotland. We'll be flying over North Ireland. And then we're going to be going over the Atlantic. We will be going over Iceland, but you won't be able to see it. He said this cloud cover. But when we get to Greenland, he says, I... Hope that you'll be able to see it because there is cloud cover there now, but it is clearing out. And then we'll go in at Labrador and Hudson Bay, and then we'll go over across those ice fields. And he just outlined the whole trip for us. Now, you talk about foreknowledge and election. He decided where we were going, how we were going, and he says that it's going to be a very... Pleasant fly, He says, now, around Greenland, we may hit a little choppy weather, but it's not bad. And we ought to have a very smooth trip. And you know it worked out just that way, but it could be otherwise because he's just a human being. Now, nobody in there ran up to the cabin and protested and said, you've got no right to plan our trip. I thought it was great. I'm sure glad there's a God of this universe. And he knows what he's doing. He knows where he's going. And he knows what he's about. And he's doing the very best. And I say, hallelujah for election, which is according to the foreknowledge of God. God's able to do it because he knows everything. And that pilot, now he got word about weather conditions. And his flight was plotted for him to follow. But it could have been upset. But you see, our God knows everything. He knows every condition. He knows anything that's foreseeable or unforeseeable. And so we can trust Him today. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That is what God the Father did through sanctification of the Spirit. Now, we've said before that when sanctification is identified with Christ, it means He is our sanctification and we are complete in Him And we'll never be any better when we come into the presence of God than we are this very moment, because we're complete in Him, and we're accepted in the Beloved, so that you can't add to that. That's our position in Christ. Now, when you're talking about sanctification of the Spirit, you're talking about something else. You're talking about the Holy Spirit in the world that not only is we're going to see converts us, and... He's responsible for our new birth, but he also begins to work in our lives and hearts to bring us up to that place of maturation where we become a full, mature Christian. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians that have been Christians 50 years that are going into heaven as little babes in Christ. And I think that's going to be embarrassing to go in there, still a burping baby, what a Tragic thing that'll be, but it's the purpose of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us down here. And I wish there was more emphasis upon that instead of all of this talk I hear today. Now, some people think I'm picking on some particular individual. I am not. I suppose I know at least 25 different organizations and ministers who have become experts in telling you how to be an adequate Christian, how you can be a fulfilled Christian, and how you can be comfortable as a Christian. My friend, I hope you never get to the place where you do not feel your inadequacy and your dependence upon Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm tired of these adequate Christians, and some of them that I meet, brother, if they're adequate... I don't want to be adequate, that's for sure. They are totally inadequate. I'm not talking about anyone, and don't say that I'm being ugly and I don't understand somebody. I'm not talking about anybody. I'm talking about the fact that the Word of God says that sanctification is by the Holy Spirit of God. And it's not by some method today, but it's only as the Spirit of God works in this Fella, Vernon McGee, who has an old nature, and he's a sinner, a sinner saved by grace. My, how important this is, my beloved, sanctification of the Spirit. Now, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we've got all of the Trinity here. It was actually... Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He planned it. We saw that back in Ephesians. And sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit protects us today. And it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Obedience. Now, may I say to you, we can make a test of this. Somebody says, how do I know I'm the elect? Well, Henry Ward Beecher used to divide it like this in this quaint way. He says, there's the whosoever wills and the whosoever wants, And you can know whether you are or not. Has it led to obedience? Is Christ really your Lord? Now, that's something else we hear today. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's my Lord. Is he your Lord? If he is, why, you love him. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's going to be number one. Do you love him? Now, obedience. And obedience means that you obey him. You don't do what you want to do and then call that the will of God for you. It means that it's obedience. Now, and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. My friend, there is today quite a silence about the blood of Christ even in fundamental circles. Now, the blood of Christ, as long as it coursed through his veins, had no value whatsoever. When he was on that cross and that blood was shed, and I think his body was absolutely emptied of blood, it ran down there. And I know that that doesn't sound very aesthetic. Dill Dowager went down to see a new pastor in Washington, D.C. years ago. She went down with a lorgnette. and You know what a lorgnette is? It's a snare on the end of a stick. And she went down at that lorgnette, and she says, young man. Now, the pastor we had, he was an old man, and he always talked about the blood of Christ. And I hope you are not going to make too much of the blood of Christ. He looked at her and smiled, and he said, madam, I can assure you, I won't make too much of the blood of Christ. And she was about to say, well, that's very fine, very wonderful. And he said, you know, you can't make too much of the blood of Christ. I don't think it ought to be dealt with in a crude way. And I sometimes hear it dealt with in a very crude way. But my friend, when that blood spilt out, he gave his life. The life of the flesh is in the blood. He shed that blood that you and I might have life. Now, he's speaking to these that were brought up in Judaism, you understand, they knew the Old Testament. He's writing to the diaspora, believing Jews that were then in Asia Minor, in that specific area. That's where Peter's writing. And he's using a statement that they understood that the great high priest on the great day of atonement, he took the blood, he went into the Holy of Holies and he sprinkled that blood seven times on the mercy seat. Now... The Lord Jesus Christ has taken his blood to the throne of God, the throne that looks down at me and says to me, you're a guilty sinner. But he sprinkled his blood there. He gave his life, and the penalty's been paid. And now that throne of judgment is a throne of grace today where I can come and I can receive salvation. My friend... The gospel hasn't been preached unless you're going to say something about the blood of Christ, and it may offend you aesthetically. That's the offense of the cross, that he shed his blood. It's not pretty, but your sin and my sin's not pretty either. And that's the thing that's ugly about the cross, is he had to die for you and me, and we need to keep that in mind. I'm afraid today, it's like a little story, I heard not too long ago about a terrible accident that took place at a railroad crossing. The train had hit a car, and two or three had been killed. And there was a trial, a court trial, and the watchman that was at that crossing was being questioned. And the lawyer said, where were you at the time of the accident? He says, well, I was at the crossing. And he says, did you have a lantern? He said, yes. He said, did you wave that lantern to warn them of the danger? He said, I sure did. And then they dismissed him. They thought that is enough. But that watchman, as he walked out of the courthouse that day, someone heard him mumble to himself. He says, I'm sure glad they didn't ask me about the light in the lantern because the light had gone out. My friend, there are a lot of lanterns being waved today in the name of fundamentalism and evangelicalism and conservativism. But the lantern doesn't have any light in it. You see, it's the blood, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now he comes to one of the key words here, grace unto you. Because of the work of the Trinity, That God had you in mind when Christ died. And the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you to make you a better man. And Christ shed his blood that you might have forgiveness of your sins. Now, God can save you by grace. Grace unto you and peace. And you'll never know the peace of God. I read a letter from a man that was in a cult. He didn't have peace. And I can tell you right now, my friend today, if you're in a cup, you're not a believer that Christ shed his blood for your sins, you won't have peace in your heart. You don't have to tell me. I just know you don't have peace because peace comes. And there's an assurance and a joy when you know your sins have been forgiven you. I want you to know I'm not waving a lantern today, it doesn't have a light in it. And I'm not talking about something that's theoretical. I'm saying here what Simon Peter, this rugged fisherman, knew. Knew because Jesus had told it to him. He knew it because he saw Jesus die, he saw where he was buried, he saw the resurrected Christ. And he found out in his own life that this wish-washing, mollycoddle, shilly-shally man, now is a rock man that can stand on the day of Pentecost, preach the gospel, and can go to jail and finally be crucified and can write an epistle like this. And this is the living word of God we're looking at today, my beloved. Therefore, this is a tremendous statement here in verse 2. Now, you have already discovered, those of you that are following our study, that Simon Peter is not an ignorant fisherman. And no one who's been three years with the Lord Jesus in his college of the apostles could be called an ignorant man. And I do not care who he was and what little he had to begin with. And there are those that like to criticize Peter for the fact that he writes really the worst Greek that we have In the New Testament, Paul and Dr. Luke, they are really Greek scholars, but Simon Peter didn't do too well with it. And I want to say that he did better than a lot of the so-called scholars today. And you ought to see the Greek that I write, or that I did write, when I was in seminary and in college, It wasn't really as good as Simon Peter's. So I'm not in a position to criticize the man because of that. But I do know that he's been giving us some very strong medicine here. And he has told us about the doctrine of election. And I read the statement that's in the New Scofield Bible, and I said that I didn't understand what it was saying. I probably ought to qualify that because it was a facetious remark. And I make many of them actually in a kidding way, but apparently some folk don't understand my type of humor, and they feel like I'm serious sometimes when I'm not. I'm serious most of the time, but not all the time. And I find a great deal of humor in the Bible. Some time ago, when we were in Hebrews, I mentioned the fact at that time that I have this little book on the fact I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, and I attempt to handle it in what I trust would be a scholarly manner. But on the radio, I gave this rather facetious remark. I said, well, if Paul didn't write Hebrews, it would mean that he only wrote 13 epistles and I didn't think he'd stop with that unlucky number. Therefore, he must have written Hebrews. Now, I have thought anyone would understand that when I make a remark like that, I must be kidding. But I have had several letters from folk rebuking me for being superstitious and trying to straighten me out and explain to me on another basis why Paul wrote. And I wish they would get my little book on that, on the authorship of Hebrews. And if you did, you'd find out that, very frankly, that I make it very clear that there are other reasons for it. And I was merely joking. So when I said I didn't understand this, I merely meant that the statement is clear enough But it means to me just one thing, that these great doctrines like election and foreknowledge and foreordination and predestination are words that are on God's side of the fence, and that you and I just can't come up with the final answers to all of those. We're dealing with an infinite God who knows everything, And his foreknowledge means that God knows every plan that is imaginable, and he knows exactly what he's going to do. And you can call that foreordination. And again, I'd like to give you a statement that comes from Dr. Schaefer again, which I think is a good one. He says, "...foreknowledge in God is that which he himself purposes to bring to pass." In this way, when the whole order of events from the last detail under the greatest operates under the determining decree of God so as to take place according to His sovereign purpose, by so much divine foreknowledge is closely related to foreordination. Likewise, foreknowledge in God should be distinguished from omniscience, that is, that He knows everything. God not only knows the plan He's working on today, He knows every other plan, that an infinite God and an infinite number of plans, and He's working on this one. And if you don't like that, I have to come back to this and say it again. It's too bad. If I were you, I would think this over and come to the conclusion that you and I have just a little finite mind. We've got a little brain. They tell me that if it weighs eight ounces, it's pretty heavy. And I don't believe an eight-ounce brain can comprehend the infinite God of this universe, who is omniscient. He knows everything. Everything that is possible to know, everything that is happening, but everything that could happen. And he's working on the best plan and I'm willing to trust him, and I think I'll just continue on in that direction, by the way. Now, in verse 3, we have something here that is quite interesting. We find that Peter looks back to the past, and he says, "...blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according..." "...to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." Now, here again you have the Trinity. And the word blessed here is different than the word that you find in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart. That's an altogether different word, McElroy. And here... It's the same word we get our word eulogy from. It means, actually, eulogio means to praise. And it's never used in reference to man in the New Testament. God doesn't praise man. But man is to praise God, and he's the Father. Now, the practice today is for a father to praise his son. But very few sons today praise the Father. But we are to praise God and the Father. But He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that happens to be in a unique way. As the Lord Jesus said to Mary, I ascend my Father and your Father. He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ because of His position in the Trinity, and they're equal. But you and I, Do not call him Father, except on the basis that he mentions here. He hath begotten us again unto a living hope. Now, that word begotten has to do with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And so we have the Holy Spirit mentioned here, and we're going to come to that later on in the 23rd verse of this chapter. He hath begotten us again to a living hope. Now, you and I today have a living hope, a hope that rests upon the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, there you have the third person of the Godhead. So, in this verse, you have a reference to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son. Now, it's a living hope, and a living hope that rests as we saw back in the second verse of this chapter, on the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the living hope that you and I have. And there are several things here to note. The living hope that we have that rests upon the blood of Christ is very important for us to note. A body without blood is a dead body. If it's going to be a live body, it's got to have blood coursing through it. And you and I today have a living hope because of the blood of Christ shed for us. He died that you and I might live because He paid our penalty. A living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is a pen of praise to the Trinity. This is our song book because we have been begotten. This is the new birth, born again, as he says in verse 23, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. And it rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Peter emphasizes the resurrection of Christ on the day of Pentecost. That was his great theme on that day. He says, what you see that's happened here today is because Jesus that you crucified has come back from the dead, and he's at God's right hand. And when he writes his epistles, he anchors it in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul did the same thing. Paul, you remember, said he was delivered for our offenses. He died for our sins but he was raised for our justification that we might be in Christ, accepted in the Beloved, and stand before God. He doesn't only just subtract a sin from us, he makes over to us his righteousness that we might stand before God. That is what he's done for us in the past. Now, He moves to the future here. Now, will you notice this? "...to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you." Now, this is an inheritance that's incorruptible. That means you can't destroy it. No germ or rust or moth or enemy can ever destroy it. It's something that can't be affected at all. I heard of a man that was left in a will, a beautiful home, southern home, down in Louisiana. And the night that this man died, and this other man was to inherit it, the house caught fire and burned down. And that what he was to get. He didn't get. There was no insurance. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible. Nothing can affect it at all. And today, we have something that we can look forward to. And this, by the way, is a very wonderful thing. You remember the Israelites going through the wilderness. They had a deliverance out of Egypt, and they had the promised land they were going to. And they blessed God. They praised God as the Creator of the world and as their Redeemer from Egypt. Now, the Christians today, we bless God as the Father of the Incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus, and the One who raised Jesus from the dead. And He is the author of this new creation and of spiritual redemption. And He also has given us a living hope. That means a hope that will never die. And He's begotten us, made us His sons through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and then we have an inheritance, and not on earth, but an inheritance that is in heaven. And that inheritance is one that, first of all, it just can't be corrupted. It's non-destructible. No germ or rust or mold, or enemy can destroy it. Someone has put it like this. It will always be new. It will never decay. "...no night ever comes, it will always be day, how it gladdens my heart with a joy that's untold to think of that land where nothing grows old." Now, our attention today has been taken away from that which is future, because there's so much attention given today on how to live the Christian life and how to be an adequate Christian and how to be sufficient... And generally, it's some gimmick that actually is the work of the flesh. And I'm going to say something in just a moment relative to that, because he's going to talk about the present also. Let's move down now to verse 5. "...who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days." Now, we are kept by the power of God. This is the keeping power of God. And this is probably one of the most wonderful words that we have here. Kept by the power of God through faith. I I want to say something. I don't want to be ugly about this at all. The old Scotchman, you know, died, and he left word of the epitaph that he wanted on his tombstone. And you know, We Scottish folk, we are economical, not only with money, but even with words, with everything. And he just had one word put as an epitaph on his tombstone, and it's the greatest that I know of. You know what it was? Kept, K-E-P-T. He was kept, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And that's the same thing Paul said. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Do you think he can keep you? Now, may I make this statement here. There's so much emphasis being put today on this. Oh, are you an adequate Christian? Well, you want to know something? I'm not. I wonder if these fellows that are giving all these messages, have they reached some celestial level that I haven't been able to get to? And they say, are you sufficient? Are you satisfied? No, my friend, I'm pressing on the upward way today. I'm pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not satisfied. I haven't found life sufficient. I haven't found any little gimmick that'll work. And all of these are the works of the flesh. Now, I'm going to make a strong statement, and it's going to be so strong that some of you ought to sit down, if you're standing up, to hear this. My friend, you cannot live the Christian life. Somebody says, you don't mean that. I do mean that. And I challenge you to show me a verse or any scripture where God has asked, you to live the Christian life. He hasn't done that at all. i got an old nature, and that old nature is going to be with me. Now, I'll admit that at times it really shows. i got a bad temper sometimes, and I say things even to my wonderful wife, and I go up later and make up with her, you know, and I take her in my arms and tell her I'm sorry what I said, and she forgives me. It's nice making up always, you know. But may I say, that old nature that you and I got, you can't do anything with that. Listen, you can no more improve that old nature than you can take a gallon of Shalimar perfume and take it out into the barnyard and pour it on a pile of manure and expect to sweeten it. You can't improve that old nature, and you've got that old nature, my friend. Now, the only way in the world that you're going to live a Christian life is by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the fact that you're kept by the power of God, my friend, right on through till the day that you're delivered to Him. And as we're going to see, it has to do with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, listen to him. "...in this," I'm reading now verse 6, "...in this ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold trials." Now we are coming to the key of this epistle. I believe verse 6 here that I've just read of chapter 1 is the key to the epistle of Peter. And what you have here is just simply this, suffering and the security of believers. And it produces joy. Now, because of the work of the triune God, that God our Father, according to His mercy, oh, He's been so merciful. He has begotten us. He's given us a new nature and a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, begotten by the Spirit of God. Now, he has out yonder in the future, and that's the thing that Peter's going to emphasize, is you and I have got a marvelous inheritance that's coming up someday. And I tell you, we ought to spend a little more time on that, and quit all of this inward-looking today of trying to improve this old nature that you and I have got. We're not going to do much with it, by the way, at all. You just well take that gallon of Shalimar perfume out to the barnyard and pour it on that pile of manure as to try to improve that old nature that you and I have got. But we're down here where God has a way of improving it, and that's through manifold trials. And we've had that before It looks like that we've got a stuck record. In Hebrews, God tests us by trials and troubles. Lord Jesus said in the world we were going to have trouble. And James said that. And now Peter comes along and says that. And Paul said that. And may I say to you, and here is something, that I find that they just don't give today in any seminary are in any of these different courses today, do you know that the way God is going to improve you and me is by suffering? That's not popular. And so today, we have to have a lot of gimmickry, a lot of things to encourage us that we're somebody, and we're going to be somebody. My friend, we're nothing until the Spirit of God begins to move in our hearts and lives. We have nothing to offer to God. He has everything to offer to us, and he's going to improve us. Now, Peter's going to give as one of the reasons that we are to endure the trials down here is because of the fact that they're not going to be long, compared to eternity at least, and that there is an eternity ahead of us. And we need to dwell on that more today. There's such an emphasis on this life because today psychology has slipped into the church and materialism has so that we feel that we just must be a full-orbed individual. We must be with it. And if we're not, then something's radically wrong. And if we're having trouble... Then that means something's wrong. Well, it doesn't. And one of the things that should encourage us is, as he said in verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible. And we saw what that was it's non destructible, nothing can hurt it, no fire can. And then it's undefiled, that is, it's not stained or defiled by anything. We don't get this inheritance illegally. "...and it fadeth not away." It's not withered. That is, we don't inherit some stock that was way up above a hundred, and now it's valueless. Ours is an inheritance that'll never wither or fade away. And it's reserved in heaven. Now, that word reserved means it's guarded. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're taking care of it for us. And you couldn't have it in a better safety deposit box than that. Now, because of that, then down here, he goes on to say that we are going to have trials. Now, these trials that we have down here are actually temporary, and that is the thing that you will remember that Paul emphasized. For instance, in Second Corinthians 4, verse 17, "...for our light affliction, which is but for a moment." "...worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." Now, the things that are at our fingertips today we think are so valuable, they're not valuable, friends, if you measure them in the perspective of eternity. They're passing away. All of these things are destructible. They are corruptible. They are defiled. They do fade away. But the things we don't see are really the eternal things and the things that are important.